Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for following Jesus. If we haven't met yet, my name is Tony and I'm your host. With over a decade in the local church, I care deeply and passionately about helping you connect with Jesus in practical ways. Today's conversation was a doozy. Johnny Serparilla wants you to know that life is hard, but it'll be okay. In our conversation today, we talk about the loss of his triplets. We talk about how not to let a good crisis go to waste. And we talk about so much more. If this conversation is uh, uplifting to you, if it helps you in any way, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Maybe somebody who you know is going through crisis. Guys, I think you're really going to love Johnny's heart and his experience. He's a, a former CEO of uh, Camping World, just a really smart guy who wants to help you deal with crisis. So now, let's jump into the conversation with Johnny. Johnny, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You've got an incredible story, and I can't wait to share it with the world. Now, you're in Naples, Florida. Is that right? That is right. Um, it's better than Ohio, even though you're born Buckeye and live in the Canton area. So I have to ask this question right out of the gate. Are you uh, Browns or Bengals? Browns. Uh, you know, I'm born and raised an hour south of Cleveland, um, although my boys are Pittsburgh Steelers fans. Oh, out of all the answers. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. How about that? Maybe just lost part of your audience right there, Tony. I don't know, but uh, truth be told. I love it. Well, grace is abundant. And w- one of the areas that I-, I love to start in is it's kind of even more macro than this is kind of talking about um, your calling. And so h- how would you describe the calling that God's placed on your life? You've done a lot of different things from being an entrepreneur to <clears throat> now what you do with Encourage, an author, speaker. Um, how would you describe what God has you doing? So I think what God has me doing, Tony, uh, especially at this stage of my life right now, is sharing the gifts that he gave me of logic and communication. And so I feel that, you know, at, at one time when I was an accounting major and worked in accounting in my early years and was really a numbers guy and then grew in, in business and leadership and to having family business and then growing into the national stage of having thousands and thousands of employees, you know, I, I kind of felt like I lost my identity, that I wasn't the accounting guy anymore. I wasn't the mergers and acquisition guy anymore. I was the leader. And I think that's really where God has called me to land and be is to uh, share the gift of logic that he's given me and to see situations and to see challenges in ways to look at things differently. And he's placed in my life um, the opportunity for me to learn uh, from the benefits of free will that he gave us uh, when things go wrong. Um, You know, I don't say that God caused the problems in my life. Uh, The free will that he has given us, um, free will happened. And then God was there for us when it did happen. And um, he's really put on my heart very heavy. And as I wrote my book to tell our story is to let people know that uh, I have a story to, to share and to talk about what God's put on my heart and how I look at hard times and how it's brought me closer to him. And the, the tougher the times, the closer we were. And even seeing that in the next generation and our kids, 
how they feel about their faith. Yeah, that's, I, I love that idea about um, logic and, and being able to, to look through a certain kind of lens. I, I do wonder in your thoughts, do you think logic is something that can be taught or is it uh, one of those things that is both gifted and taught or how do you develop a good logic? Because as they say, common sense really isn't that common anymore. And so I'm kind of curious if there's somebody out there listening, how would you encourage them to develop in that thought process? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're a parent right now and you're and you're raising a child that is combative at times, but they come back at you with um, some good logic, um, know that I think that is God puts that in us. You know, my mom used to say when I was five years old and would challenge my parents on something, she and my and both my parents were very type A, strict, driven, faith driven people. But she would say to my dad, you know, John, don't, you know, try to um, force him into submission always because his logic is really good. What he's saying, he's not wrong in what he's saying. I know it's not what you want to hear, but there's some logic there. And so God gave that to me and, and I use that. And it was interesting that my mom always remembered that from me on the age of five to as I grew up and found myself in situations uh, where logic was needed and, you know, use that logic, she would always say, you always had that in you. So I would say that it is in some of us more than others, but then I can't say, I wouldn't say that you can teach logic, but I think you can foster it, right? You mm -hmm. could get someone, you can get your child or get an adult that you're dealing with to kind of follow a stream of thoughts and look for the connectedness or the disconnectedness in it. And that outcome is logic. And so I think my parents really fostered that in me over the years. Um, absolutely to use the gifts I had and then allow me to actually convey that and talk about it and share it. My parents allowed that. So they fostered it then as well. Yeah, I love that. And, and yet there's also, uh, in your story, there's a, a seemingly kind of boldness to some of the moves that you've made along the way, right? So, you, you know, like you mentioned, you had a family business, you took it national, and now you, you've kind of stepped away from that and doing what you're doing with Encourage. One of the questions that I love to ask people is this idea about how you know when it's time to change seasons. Like, how do you hear God's voice in the midst of all of that? Oh, that's such a cool question, because for me, um, the voice was really loud and it was a voice mm -hmm. that I was hearing and I was taking an action that was the wrong action. And so oh, wow. where I realized that I had to change my seat, Tony, was on my 50th birthday. Um, it was the day of our IPO. So we took the company public after 15 years of work and <clears throat> the morning on the stock exchange floor, I was hearing it's time to go. And I was thought that just my anxious tendency that I had, that I was nervous. It was on a Friday. My son was a high school quarterback. Friday night lights was that night. I was worried about my flight, not making it in time to get home for the game. And, and that's really, you know, spending my 50th birthday watching my son play football was a dream, right? So it was going to be a great, great night. And so I left the New York Stock Exchange floor while 
all the fanfare and hoopla was still going on like at nine 30 in the morning for a three o'clock flight. Um, mm. I did not need, I had a half hour trip to the airport, but I just kept hearing it. You know, you got to go. And then sitting at the airport, it was still on my heart. It's time to go. And that's when I realized that God really put it on me, that it was time to go from the company. It was time to go from that season in my life. And I had a hard time discerning, am I just hearing this because it's my 50th birthday and it's this milestone age and it's a new decade? My dad got sick in his 50s with cancer. And so, you know, were, were there all these other thoughts playing in there? And it really was God putting really clear in my heart, there's other things that I need you to do. And so I say that, you know, retiring was the most um, selfish thing I've ever done in my career. Um, my wife does not call me retired at all. So I've, I've changed that to not use that term. Um, and I say repurposed. And I was repurposed yeah. in my 50s to really be where God needed me to be, doing the work that he needed me to do in, in business, in volunteer work, in leadership, in public speaking, in any facet of my life. In writing my book, it gave me the time to write the book. And so, um, you know, I'm a big believer in seasons of life, and it was time for a new season. And the hard thing was the financial side of me said, I don't want to change seasons. I like this mm. season. Um, <laughs> you know, in an executive role in, in, a, in a large multi-billion dollar company, I didn't want to leave that season. That was an awesome season. Um, and so, boy, there's, there's times when you just know that your work is done somewhere. And it's time for other things. And, and they may be as financially lucrative or they may not be. Um, and I was blessed to have that decision to be able to, independent of the finances, decide where I was meant to be. Yeah, I wonder if we could drill down on that a little bit, because I, I think that there's probably a lot of people listening who are feel like God might be calling them into a new season. That's one of the things that I hear a lot from uh, our listeners what kind of your process you go through when you're making a big life altering decision like this? Are there any kind of words of wisdom or things that you learned along the way? Any, any systems or tools that you're like, yes, you have to do that in order to make it work. Or what are your thoughts on how, how do we know when we're making, we're saying the right? Yes. So I, as I mentioned earlier, I have anxiety. All right. And so I'm a warrior. I've always been a warrior. Um, and, and really, as a parent, became worrying to a whole new degree. And so what I've learned to do is uh, use that to my favor. And I haven't made a lot of big mistakes in life because of my anxiety, my tendency to worry. I always have to play out four to five chess moves out so I can mm. see what's happening out there in all these different scenarios. And then I play those different scenarios out to say, can I accept that? And can I live with that? And so that's how I believe that you're best served when you feel that there is a need for a seasonal change. And you feel that because it's, it keeps hitting on your heart, right? It's in our thoughts. I'm, I'm interested in that opportunity over there or that job um, or that relationship, whatever it might be, or that purpose, that vision, that you're, you're getting drawn to something you take a little time and, and start playing out what are the circumstances look like if you go down that path. 
And so I did each of those chess moves and then did exponentially the next chess move. Okay, so if on this path, path A, if I go down that path, what's the first chess move, second, third, fourth, fifth? And I kind of play that out. And I did that with a various number of scenarios, including staying exactly where I was. And then asking yourself those same questions. How do I feel about faith in my life? How do I feel about my relationship with Christ right now? How do I feel about my finances? How do I feel about the energy I'm bringing into my household? Have that same set of questions and then ask them along each scenario, A, B, C, D, and E. And then ask them again in each of those chess moves out, if you will, A1, A2, A3. You know, Do that in each scenario and kind of chart your answers. And from there, you decide the game of Wayne because there's – I think oftentimes not just a clear, clear winner because there's going to be winners in some of the questions. Maybe the finances are better winner in category B, um, but then the uh, prayerful, faithful side is better in category A. So, So then you have to start weighing those. And, you know, a real thoughtful exercise on it before you change seasons, invest the time and energy into that process. Yeah, uh, one of the things that my counselor talks about sometimes is is that sometimes the most healing thing we can do is let all of our worst fears play out in our head, and then mm-hmm. you know just kind of come to the realization that even even on the other side of the worst fear is something that can be pretty manageable. Is that is that pretty close to the idea of what you're kind of talking about? Absolutely, because it it's natural for me. The worst fear is not my last thought. For me, it's my first thought. Yeah. Right. And so when you when you have an anxious mind or as I've called myself an active thinker, um, it, you know, I go to that worst place right away. And so when I get there, I always has, have to ask myself, is this as bad as I thought it was going to be? Number one. And number two, how likely is this scenario at all to even play out? Usually what I found in the latter question is the improbability was so high that it was a complete waste of energy to be there. And the only reason I was there was because of anxious thoughts. But I also like to go there and kind of dip your toe in there a little bit so that you have a sense for how that feels. Because one of the things that that has done for me is helped me understand that I realize that I have no longer focused on what feels good because what I know in that bad feeling is that nothing feels as good as that bad feeling feels. And so then that takes me away from those pleasures that you think, Oh, this will be better. This is a better dopamine rush. And this is a better short-term fix or whatever that might be. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to pass on that right away because nothing will feel as good as feeling that badly feels. And so I always tell people when someone says, don't let your mind go there, I say, no, let your mind go there. Um, Understand what that is like, even if it's just in thought, so that you can be sure that you don't take actions and steps and walk towards that. Yeah, I I think I agree with that. I I often say that my emotions aren't qualified to make decisions, that they, they only exist to be felt but if we don't feel them, then eventually they'll end up deciding everything for us. And so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. 
Uh, I, I am curious, you know, you, you, you wrote this book, Life is Hard, But It Will Be Okay, and it's, it's full of your story, and it's full of grief, and, and you know, I would encourage people to pick up a copy of the book, but you, you talk about the loss of your triplets, you, you talk about all sorts of kind of the, the gamut of your journey. Um, I'm interested kind of in a different thought process in terms of what was it like for you to write this book as an active thinker? Because I, I would kind of identify that way as well. And the, the hardest part about a book is that it's reliving all of those emotions and memories and thoughts. And you're so intimate and you're so vulnerable in the book. Uh, what was that process like for you? You know, as you would expect someone to say, it was cathartic, right? Um, that, that's the first thing that I think anyone that goes through that deep dive of emotion uh, would tend to say. Um, but what I found really interesting in it, Tony, for me was that um, as I was writing, I had affection and empathy for that couple that I was writing about hmm. and realizing then that that was us. Wow. And so, you know, as we, we age past a difficult time in our lives or experience in our lives, in some ways, I think for me that I, and I haven't expressed it this way before, but it's just hitting me pretty clearly now. I think I had frozen time as, as that 28 year old couple and the tragedy that hit us. And, and so that couple stayed right there. And then Johnny and Susan continued to age and grow past that. And as I wrote the book, I felt badly for that couple while having to accept the fact that that is us. And it isn't that couple as if in other people, um, it is us. And so I had a, a great appreciation for us and for what we did. I, I realized um, in reflection back how ridiculous our story was, um, how unbelievable it was. I realized how difficult it was for the people that loved us in our faith group, in our family uh, we're a very uh, f close faith group from uh, church that for 30 years, um, about a dozen couples, we've been together and just we're all godparents to each other's kids, incredibly close with each other, best friends. Our kids are best friends. I mean, it's literally this utopian faith-filled community that we've created. And it's really cool now to see as our kids are getting married, um, them wanting to replicate that um, in mm. their relationships um, in their faith journey and with their spouse and introducing their spouse, their new spouse to their family of all these aunts and uncles that are not related um, by marriage or by blood, but by faith. And, and so it's a, it's a really cool, cool thing. But I realized how hard it was for them in our journey um, as well to support us and be hopeful for us when hope was, you know, a long lost emotion and thought um, in many cases and when it didn't seem to be uh, possible. And so, you know, I just look back with a lot of gratitude um, for the perseverance that we had. Um, you know, we never thought about giving up um, through the fight to become parents, but and boy, am I glad that we didn't because, you know, what we've experienced now with the three kids that we've raised is so amazing. 
and, and we were probably on the blades of a number of times, but that young couple didn't give up. Uh, man, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but before I take another step, I want to make sure that we give a shout out to the, the local church that supported you in all of this. I'm such a big fan of the local church. What's the name of the church in Canton if somebody's looking for a church up there? Yeah, St. Michael, the Archangel. Um, they started a faith formation that another couple um, and Susan and I started, um, and they were calling them small faith groups. And so you were, you know, meant to get together to have, you know, Bible study. And what we laughed about at some point into it was, why are we calling this a small faith group? I mean, this is a big faith group. I mean, we have big <laughs> faith and we have big issues that we're tackling and trying to understand scripture and challenge each other to live what our beliefs were as Christians. And so it was a really um, life-changing um for, for all of us in the group. I mean, there, there are humans that are alive today in that faith group because couples um, open themselves up to God sending them more children when they said, we're done having kids and we don't want to have more kids. And they took, mm. you know, God out of that equation and they made that decision. Uh, there are a number of uh, kids today that are in college and out of college that are a result of those faith group conversations challenging that. And so what God had in store for us for gifts versus what we wanted to receive. Hey guys, just pausing this conversation with Johnny to remind you that the reclamation podcast is part of the spirit and truth podcast network. Spirit and truth is a ministry designed to help equip the local church for more information or to get connected, go to spirit and truth dot life spirit and truth dot life. So thankful for all the people who continue to support the ministry and make this podcast possible. Now, let's finish up the conversation. That's beautiful. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking about your marriage and that early season of your life, and obviously the community is a big part of that. But I imagine right now there are some young couples who are either in engulfed in grief or feel hopeless and if if after kind of this process of looking back at that younger version uh, of you and Susan, uh, what what advice would you give someone who's in the thick of it right now, or maybe they're they're suffocated in grief or or just feel lost? What what are some things that they can do practically to take that next right step? Perfect question. It uh, my my immediate answer is don't let a good crisis go to waste. And so, you know, to feel everything that you're feeling, whether it's a financial crisis, it's young bankruptcy, it's career challenges, it is um, challenges in your marriage, challenges in your families, and w whatever it could be, don't let that crisis go to waste, especially in terms of creating opportunity for you as a couple to grow together in the same direction. And we were given that the night before the funeral, uh, we were given that advice by uh, an acquaintance couple that showed up at our doorstep um, that had lost a child at birth and came to us to wanted to see us before the calling hours. And they were going to be at the funeral, but they wanted time with us alone before that formal grieving process started with the public act of a funeral. And they talked to us about the importance of our marriage and our relationship. And we really saw, Tony, that we you know, had something to build our relationship upon 
not something to destroy our relationship. The mm. statistics of couples that end in divorce after the loss of a child, it, it's ridiculous. It's uh, last number I heard was in the 70s. Uh, it's a high percentage. They twisted that thought for us and said, use this to cement your relationship together. And that's exactly what we knowingly, willingly, and intentionally did. And from that point, our kids say that they're a little disadvantaged because their parents' relationship is so strong. They don't have experience of seeing their mom and I fight. We're not fighters with each other because what we lived through together and the pain that I saw in my wife, there's no way I can't hurt her after I can't forget that girl that number one, almost died, but number two, went through so much for us. There's, there's no desire I have or need that I have that trumps that measure, that memory. It, it just doesn't. It is, it's so crystal clear to me. And so I've never forgotten her in that and it's made our relationship better. And so for Nicholas, Mary and Peter, our triplets that died 28 years ago, they have a huge part in the successful marriage that their parents have as a result of their life, their brief life and their death. And you talk about, you know, a purposeful life. Um, we all want purpose in our lives. And, and I don't judge their purpose by the time that they were alive. I judge it on the impact and the impact that they made on our relationship married 32 years now, the impact that they made on their future siblings relationships because of the way that our family was cemented together. Um, they changed the course of our lives for the better in every way possible. And so the purpose and significance that they played, we don't know who we are as a family of five today without that first family of five. I don't even know where we would be. Yeah, that's, uh, that's beautiful. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I like the, uh, the, the really great illustration of the idea of being cemented together. Um, you, you guys have obviously been through a lot. Uh, and in addition to the triplets, right, you, you've led a major corporation. Um, your, your wife probably has to put up with a lot of, uh, distractions, uh, as an active thinker, much, much like my wife does. Um, so one of the questions that I love to ask, uh, faithful, happily married couples are what are some of the disciplines that, you know, you kind of keep your marriage strong, keep you going. What are some of the things that you're like, man, when it comes to my marriage, these are the non-negotiables. So I'm going to give you an answer there, Tony, that I think, um, might be counterintuitive to some people, or some people may even disagree with. But the non-negotiable for our marriage is that, of course, God comes first, um, but that kind of I am third principle. And then our kids were there. Um, hmm. We realized that that season of you know birth to going off to college and beyond our kids today are 23, 25, and 27. But we, we both had a non-negotiable that creating a happy home for those kids with stability, with faith, with a work ethic, with integrity, 
that was job one for us. And Susan and I, I think, did a good job while sharing that mission, not having to say, hey, we need our us time too. We didn't have to say those things. We took that time, but we didn't do it because we had to make sure of that we were doing it. We we did it naturally and not that often. I mean, date night for us wasn't that common. Our kids were so involved in athletics and travel baseball, travel basketball, football, tennis. You know, we were traveling so much for sports that, you know, dinner and a movie didn't really enter our lives while our kids were in college. Um, yeah. and, and they were, you know, all out of the house. Now we're in this great dating stage again, you know, since the last six years that we've been empty nesters to do all the fun stuff that we want to do and just really focus on us. But we committed to each other that this family unit was everything. And we had mm-hmm. a number of years before we had kids that was all about us. And part of that was years of trying to have kids. But then we said, okay, we're entering into this parenthood thing and adoption is how we got there. Initially that now we are all in on that because now it's just not about us. Um, It is about these souls that God entrusted us. And we prayed so hard for God to send us the children that we were meant to raise Uh, any color, any nationality, any health condition, whatever it is, send us the kids that we're meant to raise. And he did exactly that. And so then it was a matter about honoring that. And so, you know, for us, our non-negotiable was being all in on the family unit. That was first. And then there was individuality in that family unit of having relationships with each of our kids and, of course, with each other. But through that, we created a strong marriage because it was all about that family unit. And I think in part, I learned that from my parents because they, as two full-blooded Italians, both my mom and dad, both fiery driven people, they clearly did not have a perfect marriage. um, And they clearly did not have a non-combative marriage at times because they were both too verbal to not do that. Um, But what they did have was a perfect commitment to marriage. Hmm. So they didn't have the perfect marriage, but they had the perfect commitment to marriage and family. And so that was more important Um, than anything else in our household, right? It was honoring God and honoring that institution of marriage. And what that meant was for them living with each other at times when they really didn't like each other um, because they didn't deal with things really as gracefully as Susan and I did. And the reason why Susan and I did, truth be told, is because I married an angel. The woman is so kind, (laughs) so good every single day. I mean, she lands... Uh, you know, there's, um, I was going to try not to, I don't know how to say it without cussing the resting bitch face that people, they say that you have. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it's fine. Yeah, we're good. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, it, hers is just resting with happiness. It's just, it's just oh, a wow. good resting face of kindness always. So it was easy to not be combative with that. If I was married to another active thinker, as opposed to a really calm thinker, would I be strong enough to not combat the way my parents did? And my parents stayed you know, married. My mom, my dad's been gone 18 mm-hmm. years, but my mom still wears her wedding ring. You know, 18 years later has never considered another date wow. or being with another man because she's still married. And she's honoring that commitment and, and grateful to, um, to have done that. And she was only 66 when my dad died. So, you know, I think that 
I was well suited. God gave me the right mate for me to have this focus with. And we were able to do that together largely because of her. You know, it's interesting as we've been talking, uh, one of the places that the Lord just seems to be nudging me lately uh, well, to, to ask you about specifically is adoption. And I, I get the sense right now that there's somebody listening who's just, uh, who's considering it and they're thinking through it and what it means. And I, I don't know if they're struggling with uh, fertility or not, but I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why uh, or kind of the unexpected gifts of adoption and, and what you and Susan experienced through that. Adoption is one of my favorite topics, Tony. So we could do a whole podcast just on adoption. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I think there is the ability to change hearts and minds on the topic. I've always said to my kids, um, that, you know, the three that we've raised, you know, one of you is adopted. I don't remember which one, uh, but I have a file um, in my cabinet mm. that has the adoption papers in it. One of your names is on it. I just don't remember which one. And uh, the first time I said that, um, and it's, it's our son, Bo, that's adopted, the oldest. And it was to his basketball team, maybe his 10-year-old travel team. And one day at practice, um, they, they were like, hey, Mr. Serpilla, you know, Bo said he's adopted, and, and we don't believe him. We think he's lying. Bo's not adopted, is he? And obviously, there was a slant, Tony, that the kids had on what adoption means, right? And so that, you know... Does, do you need to look adopted? I mean, do you need to sound adopted? What is that? that they, they got the impression that Bo wasn't. And so when I said the, the boys was the first time I said that statement, I said, you know, guys, I, I don't remember one of my kids is adopted. I don't remember if it's Bo, but I can go home and check tonight the paperwork and then I can let you know tomorrow at practice. And Bo's like, dad, you know, you're throwing me under the bus here. You're, you know, I'm not lying. I was like, oh, bud, we'll let him know tomorrow. So the boys could tell at that point that I was joking. But I say that because when God entrusts you with a life, um, you know, every one of those cliches that people say um, when Susan was pregnant with our daughter, Bella, it's so exciting you get to have one of your own. Ugh, what, mm. what does that mean? One of our own. Bo is our own. I mean, um, or you get to have a natural child, you know. There's nothing unnatural about Bo as our child. There's nothing unnatural about us as his parents. It's incredibly natural. Um, we're, we're who God chose to raise uh, Bo Serpilla. So when you think of those words that are used is why I think God's putting that on your heart to ask that question right now, because I have such strong feelings about that, that, you know, another human being has handed us six children over the course of our lives the first three that passed, but a doctor handed us each baby as they were birthed from Susan. Um, and another human handed us Bo when he was a day old. And then two more doctors handed us two other babies in operating rooms um, after a C-section. So someone hands you a baby and as, as if saying, God's entrusting you with this life and you grab that baby and there's immediate love. And so you know, for my story about adoption is I can't say that I was the guy that, you know, was raised thinking or brought up saying, I can't wait to grow up, get married and adopt a baby. Mine was, I can't wait to grow up, get married and have kids. Right. 
have kids, meaning that my wife and I were going to, through God's help, create a human life. I never said it the other way. And as it turned out, it's so perfect that it happened that way because we, we see God's mystery and glory revealed in so many different ways through mm. that life that he's saying, Johnny, Susan, as you are my child, as you were adopted by me, you know, I'm asking you to entrust and take care of this life. He asked the same thing when Bella and Stone were born as well. It wasn't something that he only said to us when we became Bo's parents. So therefore, it's, it's all the same uh, to us and, and, and really so incredible. That's beautiful. Um, and, and I honestly, I, I love the way that it's become part of your kind of mission statement, right? For my researchers, basically like three areas of your world right now, which is, you know, encourage healthy living, encourage leadership and encourage adoption. And I think all three of those really go together nicely. Um, what's the vision that you have for encourage? It's such an, uh, I, I love the name obviously, uh, as an encourager myself, but also I love the kind of the mission statement of it all, uh, 10 years from now, what are we celebrating about encourage? Well, I think we're going to be celebrating for sure. The continued, um, destiny of, of, of the origination of the name. I mean, I was praying on Thessalonians 5.11. So encourage one another and lift each other up just as in fact you were doing. And I thought that was right after I decided that I was going to retire. And I thought there's the name of my company, Encourage. So encourage one another just as in fact you were doing. And I thought I am doing that. I love encouraging people, um, encouraging them in business, encouraging them in faith, encouraging them in tough discussions and values and, and deep thinking and all things. I love encouraging people. So, you know, what encourage is all about is literally serving to others and, and through the principle of leadership, which is what I really enjoy talking about is the example that we need to be for others. The example that we need to be for others in business, um, in medicine, in all professions that we're in, the example of leadership is critical and encouraging people for their best work, for their greatest purpose, uh, for the value that they serve, encouraging them to do that, Tony takes a ton of commitment. So my hope in 10 years is that I've made a significant impact in the boards that I serve on the topic of leadership and getting people to understand fundamentally that when you accept the title of president or CEO or manager, or director, VP, whatever your title is, supervisor that you have, that you accept that it is an honor to lead. And when you mm -hmm. don't lead honorably, you are not only impacting negatively your employees, but their families as well. And that's the second book that I'm working on right now, entitled The Honor to Lead, subtitle in the damage you do to families and employees when you don't. And I intentionally say families in there, Tony, because it's not just about leading your one employee and say, I'm responsible for that one person because that one person goes home and might have a family of four or six that they, that your negative energy that you bred into that person in an eight or 10 or 12 hour workday that they took home and they poured that into other people. And they poured that into a setting with maybe weak communication principles in place 
It may be a lack of values. So there's actions that are happening that are ugly and unattractive and damaging to relationships. If you as a leader pour in that negativity into someone and then they go home and then they take that out on others where they now have control, you know, you have a hand in that. And, and I have a problem with that fundamentally. And so just like I want employees to come into the workday every day, recharged and energized to be able to really commit to the customers and the holders and the company, I want that employee to go home and be recharged to deal with their family, to deal with the most important role they have as mother, father, sister, brother, grandmother, grandfather, caregiver, whatever your role is at home, that you're really ready to do that and you're uplifted to do that. And you're not beaten down. So I'd encourage, I want to be able to get that message out there often and have people understand the responsibility they have for good leadership. I can't wait. I'm excited. Let me know when I can pre-order the book. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay. I have one more question for you, uh, but before I ask it, um, I know my audience is going to want to find you all over the interwebs. Where's the best place where they can learn about when the next book is coming out and follow what God is doing through Encourage? So a number of places, uh, certainly on Instagram, at Johnny Serpilla. Facebook, uh, Johnny Serpilla as well on Facebook. My website, you can get it to it one of two places, uh, encourage33.com. So we know 33 biblically is an important number. So just remember the number encourage33.com. And or uh, you can reach me online at johnnyserpilla.com. Uh, and so my website shows, you know, really the full build out of all the uh, projects that I'm involved in um, and, and the mission that I have at Encourage. And also uh, my book's available. Uh, Life is hard, but I'll be OK. Really anywhere online, the books are sold. Um, certainly Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and others. And if anyone um, is kind enough to read the book, uh, it's available on uh, Audible um, or an ebook, or of course the uh, paperback book. If you read it, I'd love for you to leave a review on Amazon and just let me know what you think and how it hit your heart. Yeah. Amen. Okay. uh, Last question. I love to ask people. Um, it's an advice question, except I get to ask you to, uh, I kind of take you back in time to give yourself one piece of advice, except I get to name the season of life. And so I, I want to take you back um, to the day after your wedding day, that younger version of yourself, newly married, unclear about what the world is going to hold, uh, grasping tightly to all of the, the dreams that you still have. If you could go back to that younger version of Johnny pull a chair up in front of him, sit knee to knee with him, hold his hand, look him in the eye and give him one piece of advice. What's the one thing you're going to tell him? This is going to sound a little cheesy and, and uh, silly, but it's how I got the title of my book. I would tell him life is hard, but you'll be okay. And the, and the reason why I would say that Tony is because At that point in time, in my early 20s, I had the belief that with any goal that you have, you just work hard at it and you achieve your goal, check the box and go on to the next goal. And I had never really experienced, I had been blessed, you know, with a stable 
home growing up with parents that loved me and were committed to our family and were committed to teaching us work ethic and all those things and good things and faith-filled that I really had never had to go years and years fighting for something and not achieving it. And so yeah. there was always kind of the, you know, you don't maybe, you don't win, you get second place in the tournament. You know, there's third place, you made it to the final four, whatever it might be, there was always those other things that you could still feel accomplishment. On the, the important thing of having children, it was you had a child or you didn't. Um, getting pregnant wasn't just the win uh, because you needed the baby to live after. And so, you know, there was, it was either win, lose. And I think I didn't anticipate that life was going to be that hard. I thought I was just going to keep on this upward trajectory of setting more goals, achieving more, being more grateful, being thankful, being faithful, and just keep going up and up and up. And I didn't see the roller coaster that life was going to be. And so I'd want uh, that, that younger 24-year-old Johnny to know that life is going to be hard. And, and it, it's going to be okay. And it's even going to be better than okay when you really you know, work hard to live through those blessings um, that are there even in tragedy. And so I'd ask mm-hmm. everyone, and maybe a kind of a closing comment or thought is, you know, when you think about the thoughts that you have in situations that you're in, there is beauty in every tragedy. And for us, we were not going to let Nicholas, Mary, and Peter's life be defined by tragedy. It was going to be a, a life well-lived and beautiful, regardless of the time between their birth and death certificate. And the reason why we felt so strongly about that is because we couldn't live with the alternative thought that it was just tragic and awful. Yeah. We, we couldn't exist and get out of bed. We couldn't stop hanging out at the cemetery every day because it was just such a dark place. And so forced to reframe thoughts and learning it through therapy, we're able to see of all the amazing things that they did in their short lives and the love around us and the people that Christ put in mm-hmm. our lives around us to get us through that taught us the people that we need to be for others when their tough day comes, when they have their crosses to carry. And so I ask people to take the hard times in their life and be thankful for them because there's good in those that happen. And of course we wish for a different outcome. um, But when that outcome isn't going to be different and it's still going to be the same, what can you cling to? And I'd ask people to cling to something joyful as something horrific and tragic and dark because life is meant to be lived here fully. And you can't do that if you're always in a dark place. Amen. That'll preach. Uh, Johnny, thank you so much for your willingness to be uh, so vulnerable and transparent and, um, and for your, your wisdom today, I, I would love to have you back on the podcast when the, when the second book comes out and just continue to stay connected as we, we both do our best to follow Jesus. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks for what you're doing out there to give um, your listeners such encouraging messages. Um, it's meaningful. So um, thank you. Man, I love Johnny's heart. I appreciate his story, his vulnerability. I also think that his idea that sensitivity as a strength is something that we can all hold on to. I know also I'm still thinking about that idea about not letting a good crisis go to waste. 
I really appreciated the way he and his wife formed together to create a new foundation for their family. Such a good one today, guys. So thankful for you and the opportunity that I uh, continue to get because of you listening, you sharing, and you leaving reviews. It does mean the absolute world. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And remember, guys, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.